You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. And so this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Uh, If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there with me. If you do not have a Bible that you can call your own, I encourage you to grab one of the ones that's located in the seats in front of you and consider that a gift from us to you. Again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Uh, It's a lot of text, so bear with me as uh, it is now story time. So, I'm just kidding. If you can and are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 21 says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, um, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he said to them in Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house... They saw the child and Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time in which he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, to, appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. I want to say a happy Advent to you. Merry Christmas. So glad that you are with us, um, especially if it is your first time. I just want to say welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're here to join us. My name's Court, and I'm one of the pastors uh, here at the church. And like Ty said, we are working through a series uh, in the Advent called True. 
and better king. Uh, just so you know, this, uh, this water trough that is up here is here for a purpose. We're going to celebrate baptisms here in our gathering this morning, and we're excited about that. Um, yeah, we're really pumped about that. I just wanted to make mention of it, though, just so you knew this was not just a random bucket of water. Like the student ministry just had a good time. We just were too lazy to clean it up. This is purposeful, all right? We got some, we got some plans here this morning, and we're excited. So uh, we got a lot of work to do in this text. Obviously, we got 21 verses and uh, a big story. And so because we have baptisms, I want to be mindful of that time, and I would love it if you'd bow your heads, and I would just pray that the Spirit will speak to us through his word. Amen? So bow your heads. Father, thank you for your word. We, in this Advent season, we just ask, Holy Spirit, would you help us to slow down the churning wheels? Lots of things going on, lots of travel, lots of family events, preparing for family events, gift buying, the preparation for gift giving. Lord, it's easy to be in a rush. And of course, Lord, we confess to you that there is this ever-present anxiety surrounding this sickness. And so we just ask, would you help us to cast our anxieties at your feet this morning because you care for us. And Holy Spirit, we invite you now, would you challenge us with your word? Um, Lord, we can't bear the condemnation because the condemnation that's deserved is too heavy for us. So we thank you that the gospel is true this morning and that when we read your word, it can be the freeing and refreshing conviction that leads to repentance, that leads to life. And so we ask for that. And finally, I just pray that for those who are being baptized this morning, may it, be a, may it be a sweet celebration here as it is in heaven. And just give us that joy. And for those that are just watching and participating by being the, the witnesses present, we pray as David prayed, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? Restore to us, God, and place us back in that moment when we were first baptized and just that covenantal moment of going from death to life. God, bring that to us. We love you, God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so the book of Matthew, and, and listen, when you think of all through all four of the gospels, the first three synoptics and then the book of John, each gospel is a story about the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's talking, that's why they started his birth, they ended the resurrection. That's what the gospels, the, the general and overall purpose of their existence is for. However, why do you have four of them? Now you can say that God is just desiring to be thorough. You could say, well, there was a lot of people who, you know, uh, were eyewitnesses to this. And so it's good that we have more, but each one of the gospels also has a particular thematic element to it. So like a, for instance, would be the book of John is written that we might know that Jesus was not just another prophet among many, but that he was God in the flesh. We know this because the seven I am statements of John are hearkening back to the Old Testament when God told Moses, tell the, tell the children of Israel and tell Pharaoh, I am who I am. That's my name. So when Jesus stands forward in the gospel of John and says seven times over again, the number of God's perfection and creation, I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the door to the sheep. And he says these I am statements. It's him hearkening to he is God in the flesh. And John wants us to catch that. It's also why he starts in John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. Well, the Jews would have heard that and said, whoa, that's, 
a massive statement. It's why Jesus was actually, they tried to stone him for blasphemy. But the Greeks would have heard it and said that's massive too. Because in the Greek it says, in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. And the Logos became flesh. Now to the Greeks, the Logos would have, they would have hearkened back to Plato and thought, oh, you're saying that the uncaused causer, the creator of all things, the one who is preeminent, became a man? This is a big deal. Okay, so each gospel has its own bend. Matthew's gospel is bent toward you and I understanding the kingship of the Lord Jesus. It's why in the genealogy from the very jump, it says that he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why the son of David? The true king. That's why he wants us to know that he's the son of David, the son of Abraham, right? And so because of this, an entire chapter, chapter two, is devoted to this juxtaposition of King Jesus being born in the time of King Herod. Now, who is King Herod? King Herod is a very powerful and very wicked man. Most of the historians will say that Herod was one of the only kings of the time who was universally hated, not just by the Jews, but also by uh, the Romans, and then later on by all the Christians. He just universally was unliked. And the reason for that is because, quote, this is from a commentator, a historian, he was prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition. So if you have a leader, a king like that, with unbridled power to an extent, and he's willing to do anything in order to gain more power, more influence, and to preserve his own throne, that's a recipe for disaster. And that is the time and the place and the proximity in which King Jesus is born. And Matthew wants us to know this is not by accident. So the story starts like this. King Herod hears of Jesus' birth by wise men from the east who travel to Judea on the basis of a celestial sign they saw in the heavens. They see a star, and because they're astrologers from the east, they say, we know someone great is to be born. They look into their books, and they say, apparently, it's a, it's a king, a king of the Jews is to be born. And they come to Herod, the king who's crazy about power, and say, hey, we heard a king's born in your region, king of the Jews. And you can only imagine how this goes when he hears that someone this powerful is being born in his kingdom. Well, here's what the Bible says. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Now that's important. And when Herod the king heard this, quote, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, so a few things here. One is very obvious, and that is that Herod is greatly troubled, along with all Jerusalem, which probably gives us the inclination that leaders matter. Because when leaders are wicked, then people can follow suit. At least most people, most of the time, which creates a culture. You guys catch that? If culture is what most people do most of the time, leaders can create culture. And the culture of Jerusalem at this time is they hear about Jesus being born, and shockingly, they're all troubled by it and not excited. But it's not shocking that Herod's troubled by it, because we know what kind of man he is. He hears this as a threat. One way to look at this is to say that it is always troublesome to be told that a new king is coming if you have spent your entire life building your own kingdom. I'll say that again. It's always troublesome to hear that a new king is coming if you've spent your whole life building your own kingdom because what? That's a threat to the throne. 
But what we don't notice here, and I just want to point this out because it's, you know, it's easy to pass over, but it's probably the most shocking of all, is how the chief priests and the scribes react to Jesus' coming. It says that Herod, the wicked king, goes to the religious of the day, the ones who know the Bible, who know the scriptures, and say, hey, uh, what's this whole thing about the king being born? Now, we know that Herod has nefarious intention, but nonetheless, they respond exactly how they ought to. It says he will be born in Bethlehem. It says that he will shepherd the people of Israel. And they give him the actual text. It's like, okay, they've done a good job. They know exactly when Jesus is to be born. And yet they have no interest in going with the wise men to visit him. They have no interest in worshiping King Jesus. And that to me is the most shocking of the whole story. We expect King Herod to not want another king to supplant them. But what about the men who are called to be the under shepherds of Israel, who are supposed to be the spiritual caretakers? Why is it that they don't want to worship the king? Why are they privy to all the knowledge about the Christ, but totally indifferent to his very presence among them? That's shocking, isn't it? Well, I think it's because both, both of these two, amen, it's okay. (laughs) Both of these two, groups of men are ultimately struggling with the exact same sin. Whether it be Herod the Great, who has a massive kingdom, or the chief priests who are completely engulfed in their passion for their own little religious kingdom, they both have, are indifferent or troubled by the fact that there's another king. For the chief priests and the scribes, they're too busy doing their own thing. They're too busy with their own religious kingdom, and they're totally content with the niche that they've, they've basically been allotted underneath the current evil regime. And then on the flip side, Herod is troubled because he doesn't want to be supplanted. Now, listen, before you say, well, man, these guys are terrible. How awful is that? They don't get it. They don't catch it. We must acknowledge and take ourselves out of the first century and into here in the 21st century and ask, is it plausible that you and I have the same penchant for building our own kingdoms on earth and neglecting the kingdom of God? Well, how do you build your own kingdom? You can build a kingdom at work. You can try to build your own kingdom at home. You can build your kingdom of money, of influence and power. But I defined a personal kingdom in a way that might be helpful to you, but also just fair warning, it's convicting. Okay? So I'm just going to come right out with it. Your own personal kingdom is any and all the ways that you and I seek to control, to govern, or to rule over our own lives with the faulty belief that we can preserve or protect or provide for ourselves better than God can. That is being about the business of our own kingdom. And when you hear that, I hope you also hear, oh no, I do that all the time. Oh no, I'm actively doing that right now. Because if we're not careful, you just see these evil kings like Herod, and don't get me wrong, the man, if you, the more you read about him, the more disgusted you get. But the Bible's not written for us to only read the characters and read ourselves into the heroes of the story. The Bible's written to us to read over our own hearts and for us to recognize that at times we're the villains. This is why you get some of the greatest hymns of all time um, that say things like, they place us rather than on the side of Jesus at the cross, they place us among the mockers at the cross. This is so we recognize that we too bear the guilt of sinful pursuits. Like the Tower of Babel is a story about this. It starts with a few things. You have a group of people who are simultaneously passionate about their own glory and unified in speech and in vision and totally uninterested in worshiping God. And God looks down at these people and says, this is not good. He says, it's not good for them 
because ultimately they will succeed at building this massive tower, but it will be such a futile effort that they will basically live in this cycle of frustration because they'll never ascertain the throne that is only mine. And so in his grace and in his judgment, which is a really interesting whole other sermon, but his grace and in his judgment, he scatters the people abroad. It's a gracious act of judgment because if God allowed them, they would have continued on that hamster wheel indefinitely and ended up destroying themselves. But God is gracious and so he does not. Now, don't kid yourself. That trajectory didn't stop just because we scattered. We just got more creative and crafty in the way that we, in which we do it. And we have kingdoms within kingdoms within kingdoms. You know, it's like an inception of sin. And we struggle with this. So the question we should ask is, how do we respond in this Advent? How do we respond to the story? Well, ask yourself this question. What is your life really about? Who are you really living for? It's entirely possible to know all the details about Jesus' life, to understand all the truth that he came to bring, and still to be entirely indifferent to his kingship in your life. That's what the chief priests and the scribes mean. That's the point of that story. They knew everything there was to know about the Messiah, and they were totally uninterested in actually submitting to his rule and reign. Now, before you get too harsh on them, Herod becomes even more nefarious in a moment. He's threatened and he's troubled by the kingship of Jesus. He kind of recognizes, in my opinion, a little bit better about what Jesus is coming to do than the chief priests and the scribes. The chief priests and the scribes think that if they just ignore it, that he's going to go away and they miss something very powerful about Jesus. He has no intention of going away quietly into the night. And Herod, maybe recognizing this, is threatened and troubled, so he decides to go on the offensive. Or there's a third character, which means that maybe there's another way, and that is the wise men. Now, there's a lot that you can get from the wise men. You know, you can argue, well, is it magi? What are these people? They're astrologers. Here's the most simple, in my opinion, the most simple uh, interpretation of the wise men is wise men worship Jesus. That's it. It's the most simple interpretation of the whole story. Wise men worship Jesus. The rest of the characters are not wise. They are foolish. I get this from the Psalms would say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The wise man worships God. And when the wise man hears that the king has come, the wise man goes at a, to great length to worship that king truly with their whole hearts. Now we'll unpack that a little bit more, but that's the most simple explanation, at least in my view. They are overwhelmed with gratitude, so they rush to Jesus' side. Now, what happens next? So the chief priests and the scribes, they're doing their own thing. They're too busy with their own endeavors, but Herod's troubled. Jesus' presence is not a welcomed presence in Judea, according to Herod. So he has to start scheming. Now, when we are threatened in our own kingdoms, we will scheme. <laughs> we will begin creating massive schemes to protect our own thrones. And this is what Herod does. He tells the wise men that he too is a worshiper and an admirer of the king from Bethlehem. And so he tells them, when you find him, Bring him back to me. I'll read you the story. The Herod summoned the wise men secretly, verse 7, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. I think that's key. I'll come back to it in a second. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go, search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I may too come to worship him. So after listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, and it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country on their own way. 
So Herod here is scheming, but he has no intention of worshiping Jesus. He only wants to get close enough to Jesus in order to preserve his kingdom. Don't you love the narcissism of Herod? The wise men come to him and tell him something he has no idea is actually happening right under his own nose, and he turns them into his own personal ambassadors for the king. Total narcissist. Hey, you guys go. I want to worship too. Like, I knew this was happening too, but I'm busy and I got kingly things to do. So just let me know where he is and I'll come and worship too. That is not the truth though. We know that he wants to kill King Jesus, but I think he only wants to kill King Jesus if he's a serious threat. And his question about when the star arose, from what I can gather, has everything to do with just how threatening Jesus might be. How old is this king? How long ago did you see the, star, the stars in the sky and the heavens? Is it possible he's grown up and might be really scary and actual, uh, an actual threat to me? So check out what simultaneously happens. He wants to be close enough to Jesus to potentially control or snuff him out, but far enough away that he's safe. This is what's happening. You go for me and then, you know, make sure it's good and then I'll come too. Now you don't have to be a powerful king to fall into this trap. You simply have to desire control and power over your own kingdom, however big or small. And the question becomes, what are the ways that we stay close enough to Jesus to control him, but far enough away to be safe? You see, we can be pretend followers of Jesus like Herod in order to preserve our own kingdom. And that's no new idea. In fact, throughout church history, there are many examples of this. So this is the juxtaposition. What ways are you trying to be close enough to gain the benefits of control over Jesus and far enough away where you're safe from him stepping into your heart and soul and saying, there are some changes that need to be made. You see, this is really the, the beauty of baptism as you're recognizing, you know, Paul would have never understood our nominal Christianity talk. Like when we talk about gradations of Christianity, Paul would have just said, what do you mean? Now, I don't mean that there's not a sanctification, you know, trajectory towards likeness in Christ. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this idea that Christians are super Christians or kind of Christians. There's no kind of Christian. Paul just doesn't understand this. He just says there is perishing and there is being saved. There is the gospel has actually transformed the heart in such a way that we've submitted wholeheartedly to the king or not. See, baptism is this. We are buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life again in Christ. And yet Herod here is a representation of trying to do, to do both, even though he has no intention of doing both. And listen to me, you might say, I'm nothing like Herod. That's the most nefarious part is you might not be willing to admit it and we might not be willing to acknowledge it, but our nominalness is really that we don't want Jesus to be king and we don't acknowledge him as king. We just acknowledge him insofar as it's beneficial to us. And it's not, it's not pseudo love. There's no such thing as pseudo love. It's indifference or hate towards the king. We just pretend that it's pseudo love. And let me tell you why the most easy example, would your wife or husband be okay with you saying, I pseudo love you? Or would you consider that the most the biggest affront ever to your marriage? Like, I love you. I just, you know, kind of like in the vows, right? It's like, I want to, I love you somewhat. And I commit to you as much as I have time for. If there are other things that come along that are better than you, I might do those, but I might also commit to you. You don't really know, right? Of course not. We would think that's madness. And then when we talk about like the covenant that we have with Christ, it's just an entire new category that we have. 
You see someone who's faithful to Jesus and their whole life is submitted to them. And we say things like, oh, well, they're super Christians. Like, wait just a minute. It's just Christian. And yes, we have seasons and we have struggles and we have times where we're up and we're down, but there's never meant to be a time where we are not fully submitted to the kingship of Christ because you can't half submit to a king. That doesn't work. Okay, so a few questions that I'm sure you're really eager for at this point. Are you hedging your bets with Jesus? Have you yet decided that following Jesus is worthy of your whole life? Like Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You were bought with a price, worship God with your body. He is your king. You see, the wise men, they bring gold, they bring frankincense, they, they bring myrrh, and it represents their worship of the newborn king. These three things, they represent this totality of submission to the Christ child, which is absolutely baffling. And we could spend probably hours talking about just how crazy it is that these men came from the East, traveled probably months to bring gold to a baby who probably couldn't clutch anything and hold it in his hands. You see, this, this all represents that they believe in their heart of hearts, this child is worthy of the utmost worship, that he's more precious than gold right? This is the idea. That's the kingly gift that gets given. And there's much to be said about those gifts, by the way. It's beautiful, just what's going on there. But the kingly gift, the gold gift is about he is worthy of all treasures. Notice they bring their treasures to Christ and they lay their treasures at his feet and then they walk away. It says they leave exceedingly great joy and they go home. I just find that amazing. Because clearly the child is going to do mostly nothing with these gifts, but that's not the purpose of why they brought them. It's about worship. They open their treasures in front of Christ. They leave him at his feet. Juxtapose that against King Herod, who stays in his palace with his treasures, awaiting word that Jesus is either no longer a threat or must be vanquished. That's the juxtaposition. Herod could not be bothered to leave his palace and his treasures, much less bring them to the king. He's just like the, the dragon in the voyage of the Dawn Treader. You know, Eustace becomes the dragon. And if you've never heard the story, it's amazing. I don't have time for it. But he basically can't get the dragon scales off of him. He keeps trying to scratch the scales off. He just wants to turn back into a boy again. And in order for him to really turn into a boy, Aslan has to show up and he has to dig into the very, it says that when Aslan gets his claws into him, it feels like he pierced his own very heart. And then he tears off the scales and Eustace is a boy again. But until then, Eustace was stuck in this volcano and he had this hunger for his gold. He just had, he was a miser. He just hoarded around his gold. All of us are like King Herod, that we have our own kingdoms and our own palaces and we will hoard around our possessions and our power and our influence and our money and all the things that we think make us worthy, that think make us joyful, think make us happy or valuable. And we'll hoard around it until the king comes and rips the scales off of us by his grace so that we can be human again. And the only way that we can actually be human again is to acknowledge that there's only one king, Christ the king. You see, the serpent in the garden did exactly what King Herod has bought into hook, line, and sinker. This idea to Adam and Eve that God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit of this tree because he doesn't want you to build your own kingdom because he knows that you'll supplant him. You'll be like him. You might even be greater. And the fork-tongued devil was basically just telling them exactly what he truly in his heart believes because that's exactly what he did to get thrown out of heaven. Build his, try to build his own kingdom 
And he truly, to this day, Satan still is deceived to believe he'll, he will do that. He will ascertain a throne that's greater than God's. So when Jesus comes in and begins knocking down kingdoms, he doesn't do so out of hate. He does so out of love. Because if we aren't saved by Christ from pursuing our own kingdoms, we will do so to our own destruction. So Jesus comes and topples those sandcastles so that we can experience the celestial city, the new Jerusalem. So you have Herod in his palace. And you got the wise men worshiping Christ. Let's see how, how it ends here. I'm just going to skip down for the sake of time to verse number 16. What happens is we know. The wise men are warned in a dream to flee. They don't go back to Herod. So it's a slap in the face to the paper tiger, right? And then Jesus' Jesus's parents are warned in a dream, you need to go to Egypt. And this is, this is a, there's so much Old Testament going on here, we could spend a long time on it. But they're going into Egypt, right? And then fleeing into Egypt. Uh, where the children of Israel were brought out of bondage, out of Egypt, in order to experience their redemption, right? So we're going to get to that in a second. But Joseph and Mary, they take Jesus and they go into Egypt in order to flee the bad, wicked king, Herod. Now watch what Herod does. Herod, verse 16, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, no, no schemer likes to be schemed, by the way. He became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years older or under according to the time that he has ascertained from the wise men. This is what history calls the massacre of the innocents. The Catholic church still honors these, uh, these babies as the first martyrs. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod is not only enraged, but he's been spited. And so because he's been spited, he's going to do what all tyrants do. He's going to destroy. He kills all the babies two and under. Now, before you get too crazy and think, man, this guy is an absolute madman, and he is, don't forget that our desire to build our own kingdoms always ends in destruction, and we too can be so vehemently passionate about this that we'll destroy our own lives. Historians speculate that Herod's rage led him in the killing of the innocents to unwillingly order the execution of his own son. And he didn't know that it was going to happen. His son was living apparently in another province when he said to all the two-year-olds and under, it killed his own boy. One of the historians went on to say, it is better to be Herod's pig than it is to be his son because he longs for power so much he cares nothing about it, even his own family. And the sad thing is many of us have done everything that we can to circumvent laying down our own crown at the feet of Jesus and Instead, we want to build our own kingdom, and therefore we torpedo the very thing that we hold most precious, things like our family, our relationships. We build our kingdoms at work, we end up losing at home. We build our you know, kingdoms in sports or our kids' sports league, and then our kids you know, are great athletes, but they don't love Christ, and they don't really even know us. We build our kingdoms financially, and then that all crumbles when something as frivolous as the stock market can go down. But hear me on this. Christ has come to topple those kingdoms, not because he's a power-raving lunatic, but because our pursuit of our own kingdoms will destroy us, and he loves you. He loves you. He loves you so much that he'll pursue you to, to stop you from destroying yourself in the pursuits of building yourself. He loves you so much that he will come and care for you when all you're doing is bucking up against him and fighting his hand. Now, parents, you should know this because your kids do this. You ever tried to help your kid put on a shirt and they have no interest? You know, it's backwards, it's ugly, it doesn't match. And you're just helping. They don't want your help and they'll fight you to the bitter end. Let me give you medicine. You ever try to give medicine or take your kids to the doctor with vaccines? My goodness. 
It's no hope here, all right, on making this seem good. But what do you do? If you're a loving parent, you will do everything that you can, even if it feels restraining to your child to do good to them. This is what Christ has done to us in coming and being born in the time of King Herod. He has come to topple kingdoms as, as much as we will fight against him. He wants to put the, his flag of kingship on the shores of your heart and bring you life. Another way to put it is this. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly, but the thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. The thief is very deceptive. He's so crafty. He will convince you that your pursuits to build your life are good, but in reality, you can build your own kingdom and end up being destroyed. Jesus comes in and he opens your eyes and he says, all of that pursuit will destroy you. And I'll fight against, I'll fight against all of the swings that you might swing at me in order to save you from yourself. Okay, a few last things before we pray. You and I were created to worship the one true king and to help him establish his rule and reign over all the earth. Think about the creation story. God gives unto Adam and unto Eve the role of vice regents over the whole earth and says, you are my image bearers. Go be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth and fill it. All of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea and that's what you and I are called to do. So what does this mean now in a world that's fallen, but with Christ who has redeemed us? Well, when we are engaged in the work of God's kingdom, advancing that kingdom, promoting that kingdom, praying that that kingdom would come to realization on the earth as it is in heaven, displaying his majesty each and every day in the way that we live and move and breathe, it's only then when we are truly fulfilled it's only then when you, will, when you will truly be joyful. Any other kingdom that you look to pursue will lead you to despair and discouragement and depression and anxiety. It will rob your peace. It will rob your joy. It will, it will break apart your family in these alternate pursuits. It will deteriorate the very foundation of what God has called you to build. Which means, listen to me on this. Now, this may seem counterintuitive, but you will find the most joy when you give, when you sacrifice, when you even suffer for the sake of Jesus, because you know that you are advancing the kingdom that will last. This starts with Abraham and it ends all the way in Revelation. All of the people of God that are to be admired in the Bible, the book of Hebrews 11 calls Abraham a man who pursued a city that had foundations. What does that mean? What does it mean that Abraham saw a city that had foundations? It means Abraham saw a celestial city in his soul that would not be shaken by the tumultuous world that we live in. He saw that every other city that he ever looked at, Sodom and Gomorrah and all of its grandeur was destroyed in a day. But he saw in his mind's eye a city that had foundations and he led his whole family there. This is what you and I are called to do. Look to the city with foundations and lead our families there. Help lead one another there. That city is the new Jerusalem that Christ has purchased with his own blood. In the book of Revelation, it says that John looks up in, verse, in chapter 21, he sees a city coming out of the sky. And this city rests upon this earth. And there's a new heavens and a new earth. And this is what's coming for us. And Jesus' encouragement that we might pray, Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's that we are laboring for that kingdom. And listen to me, Paul tells the church, your labor is not in vain. None of it is in vain. No dollar you've given towards it, no time you've given towards it, no talents you've expended towards it will ever be in vain. 
And then lastly, any other effort is subsequent and every other kingdom will fall. The last verse here, last few verses is verse 19. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life were dead. What does this mean? The kings of men die. (laughs) The kings of men die. Jesus and his kingdom are forever. So what do you have in the Old Testament? Jesus goes into Egypt and God says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Just as Israel left Egypt in redemption, Jesus is called out of Egypt, the redeemer. We get Herod who tries to kill all the two-year-olds and younger. And you have Pharaoh in Exodus chapter one saying that he wanted to kill all the Israelite male children, but Moses is preserved and saved. And then Moses becomes the redeemer that carries the children of Israel out. Jesus is the true king, the better Moses, the better David, who's preserved and comes out of Egypt to do what? To redeem. Now it's unique. He's not just here to redeem ethnic Israel. Jesus has a mandate to redeem all peoples from every tribe, nation, and tongue by his own power and mercy and grace through the cross. And Matthew wants us to know that King King Jesus is the true and better king. Kings and kingdoms will fall, but Jesus' kingdom stands forever. The last thing I'll bring your attention to is this. Herod kills his own son in order to preserve his own throne. Jesus, on the other hand, lays down his own life to preserve his people and to save us. That's the juxtaposition. King Herod would kill even his own flesh and blood just to have power for a little bit longer while he's on the earth. Jesus laid down his power in his own life in order that you and I might be saved to protect his people. And this is why when the the scribes and the Pharisees unknowingly, unwittingly talk about the prophecy about Christ, they miss the most important imperative of the whole prophecy, which is that Jesus will be a ruler who is a shepherd king. He loves the sheep. Herod is a ruler who's a tyrant. He cares nothing about the people, even his own son. Jesus is the true and better king who's come to shepherd. He's come to shepherd the sheep and lay down his own life as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, I just want to end by saying there's no king like Jesus. There's no king like Jesus. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. (laughs) Father, we confess to you that reading your word can be cutting at times. But it's always the wounds that heal and bring life. It's like a surgeon, Lord, cutting out that which is looking to harm us. And so, Holy Spirit, we thank you. We ask now that you would turn our eyes from our own sandcastles, turn our eyes to see the celestial city, the kingdom that you're building. As we celebrate baptisms, God, would you help us to be reminded that this kingdom will never fail. It will never fade. That your kingdom, despite every attempt by the powers of darkness to destroy it, has been marching on for thousands of years. The gates of hell will not prevail against your kingdom, Jesus. Thank you that you've called us sons and daughters. Thank you that you've called us citizens of the kingdom of God. And Jesus, thank you that your blood that was shed has secured our entry into that city forever and ever and ever. And so now as we sing and as we worship, would you help us to worship with unadulterated and pure lips, wholeheartedness like the wise men with our lives at abandon, the areas that we are looking to preserve and protect ourselves. Holy Spirit, would you highlight them that we might 
abandon ourselves before you. That in losing our own life, we might save it. (laughs) We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.